0: The Gospel of Mark, and we'll read chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples, and set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring their bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Uh, If I find it to be like a little annoying so when you go to a coffee shop and they say okay What's the name for the order? I'll say Fred. They go Brad. No, I said Fred Brett No, Fred bread. Yeah, my name is bread. So whatever at some point you give up you go fine I'm also a teacher and this is one of the most like frustrating things like you'll be going over your homework You say this stuff is on the quiz. These are the answers for the quiz. We're 30 minutes in we're on number eight and inevitably, some guy in the back row raises a hand and goes, what's the answer for number three again? Number three? We're 30 minutes away from number three. Weren't you paying attention? So I tell these guys, I am not going to repeat. And it's so frustrating, but what you realize is the things that are the most important have to be learned through repetition. Our daughter, Arlo, four and a half, she started off as such a good eater last couple of years and some change. She's gotten a lot pickier. And my wife told me that, in general, you need to introduce a food to a child 12 times minimum, 30 times at least, to get them to even decide whether they like this food or not. So if you've given up on greens, you've got 29 more times to go to see if they like it. And you know, this is true for my life. When I was a kid, I used to hate certain kinds of food, but now as I've tasted them over and over again, I find them to be very satisfying. And perhaps you're listening here and you're going, Wait, I was here last week and I'm experiencing a little bit of deja vu. Didn't Sam just preach on this passage last week? Last week, I was supposed to preach. And I texted Sam saying, someone in my family's sick. I don't think we can make it on Saturday. And Saturday, Sam goes, I got it. Someone else in the elder chat said, okay, what are you preaching on? He said, I'm preaching on John chapter six. And that's the exact message I had prepared. It's like, oh gosh, okay, fine. So Monday morning, I wake up at 6, I'm trying to figure out what to preach on. Arlo wakes up as she's in the habit of doing, and I explain my conundrum to her. I go, Arlo, Appa worked so hard on this message, but Sam stole it from me on Saturday. So what do you think I should do? And then she's like, Um, maybe you can talk about a similar story. And I said, yeah, I can do that. Because Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves, and then two chapters later, he fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. I go, Arlo, you are, you know, someone's daughter. Not my daughter, but someone's daughter. And it raises the question, okay, fine, Jesus probably did a lot of miracles twice, but why did he do this miracle twice? And not only that, why did the gospel writers record it twice? What point were they trying to get across? The reason it's there twice, the reason he did it twice, the reason we read about it twice is the lesson that he's trying to teach is something very deep, and it requires repetition. So with that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at this passage. God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time, and as Sam mentioned in his prayer, so often we can end up just looking down and thinking about all that we have in front of us. and we takes so little time to look up and see that we have this Heavenly Father who is capable of doing so much more than we can ask or imagine. There's so much that weighs us down, that makes us feel like, I don't know if I can make it. But when we take the time to look up at you, we see that mercy comes from above and that heaven has broken through. I pray that as we go through this passage, you would open our eyes to see how powerful how great how wonderful you are we thank you in your name we pray amen Amen. this comes from the gospel of mark and mark is a very simple gospel it's divided into two equal halves chapters 1 through 8 follow jesus's ministry in galilee chapters 9 through 16 follow his ministry ministry through jerusalem now galilee is kind of like a blue-collarish kind of town a lot of fishermen a lot of the disciples came from there And up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has started to do amazing things. He's gathered his disciples together, he's healed lepers, he's cast out demons, he's walked on water, he's calmed a storm, and two chapters ago, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves. And he did this because he was filled with compassion. Now between Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8, he continues to go around the Sea of Galilee and his influence starts to grow. Galilee is a much more Gentile town and he starts gathering people from far away We see this in our verses in verse 3 it says some have come from very far away and again Jesus is confronted with this crowd. He's moved by compassion He says I gotta feed these guys 4,000 people what do we have to eat and he does this miracle twice? now by this point the disciples have experienced so much They've seen Jesus do amazing things. Their minds have been blown, and they saw this exact miracle only like 50 verses ago. And so they should have understood what this miracle meant, but they still don't get it. In verse 14, we're told that they are leaving this place, and they're getting into the boat. It's probably just the 13 of them, 12 and Jesus, and they only brought one loaf of bread. And I love, like, these little episodes in the Bible because it gives you, like, a behind-the-scenes look at what it must have been like to be a disciple of Jesus. They get into the boat. They're tired. They're like, oh, we fed 5,000 people two days ago. Then we fed 4,000 people. I'm exhausted. They start sailing on the Sea of Galilee. And if I had to guess, i guess Peter is the one who probably started saying something and going, guys, I'm so hungry. Can somebody pass the bread? And then um, the disciples look at each other and they go, oh, we only got this one loaf. And then Peter's like, one loaf? We collected seven baskets full of bread and fish. Where is the bread? I'm hungry. And then they start going, well, why didn't you carry a basket, Peter? Well, there's seven baskets, 12 of you. There's four people that shouldn't have carried or five people. What is going on here? And you see them start discussing this thing like, man, I'm hungry. There's only one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? And despite all the miracles that they've seen and experienced, There is this question that still drives the story forward that lives deep in their hearts and that probably lives deep in our hearts too. And that's why Jesus has to keep repeating this lesson over and over and over again. And that question is this, do we have enough? Is there enough? And this question has driven human history forward since the beginning. When we were hunter-gatherers, food was an accident. You would happen to run into a dead animal take a sniff, smells fresh, let's eat it and go. 10,000 years ago, they domesticated grain. And now all of a sudden, the food became predictable. And with that, we started to become civilized. We learned about politics, we learned about art, we learned about poetry. And then we started developing new things, crop rotation, harnessing wind power, harnessing water power, harnessing uh, animal power, until we get to the Industrial Revolution, 1800. We get to the Industrial Revolution and a bunch of things start happening. One of the first things that happens is we start to develop interchangeable parts. Why make a unique screw for one unique thing when you can have it be applicable to all these different scenarios? The other thing that started happening, they started gathering all the workers into one place and saying, hey, let's try and develop a culture where we're working as hard as possible. And they started breaking things down into their smallest possible task. So you no longer had to build a chair from scratch. You just had to build a leg. And something amazing happened starting in the year 1800. Once that happened, population exploded. It took about 1700 years from the world to move from 150 million people to 1 billion people. From 1800 to, they're estimating, I think, October of 2022, this year, they're gonna move from 1 billion people to 8 billion people. That's a seven-fold increase in the last 200 years because this question, do we have enough, has driven human history so far ahead. But the irony is, no matter how much we work, no matter how productive we get, that question and the answer to that question is still no. There are still people who are hungry. There are still people who are in need. And this is not a world historical question. This is a personal question that we ask ourselves all the time. You live with roommates in your 20s or whatever, and then you go, This guy smells. I need to get out of here. And you ask, Do I have enough for a security deposit? Ooh, I met this person. I think I'm in love. Do I have enough for an engagement ring? The answer is no. And you go, OK, I got to save a little more. And you go, All right, I think I'm going to settle in New York. I'm going to buy a place. The interest rates right now are not good, but a, a couple months ago they were good. And you go, Do I have enough for a down payment? And now that we're getting to middle age, the dream is retirement. God, let me retire at 45. Do I have enough to retire? And the answer to that question is no. And this question keeps driving us and driving us. And sometimes when the answer to the question is no, you can see these frustrating, anxiety-filled situations that make you realize how important this question is. I teach at a school. And one of the best days at this school is Chick-fil-A Day. So on Chick-fil-A Day, I don't know who did this, but somebody donated Chick-fil-A to the school once a week. And I know it's Chick-fil-A Day because on the class right before, like six people raise their hand and go, can I go to the bathroom? I'm like, why? They're like, there's only eight buffalo sauces. So I need to go and get the buffalo sauce and keep it in my pocket before everyone else gets to go. Fine. If you did good on your homework, then I'll let you go. So one day, and to make it a little stranger, like, I guess the condition of this is on Chick-fil-A Day, you have to sit there and you have to listen to the Bible. I teach at a Christian school. So they listen to the Bible, and sometimes they read these strange passages, one that we'll talk about. So they're sitting here eating Chick-fil-A, and one of the passages once was how John the Baptist got beheaded, and his head was served on a platter. And then these guys are like, "Mmm, I love chicken. I love buffalo sauce. And meanwhile, this gruesome thing is taking place in the background. Well, anyway, one day, it's Chick-fil-A Day. The kids get down there. And there's no chick-fil-a the guy did not show up and now they're forced to listen to the bible and be quiet and these kids start looking at me like dr kim can you do anything can you run out and get us pizza i kid you not this guy started like pulling his hair and then he started um doing that thing where he spins around on the ground so he was so hungry so anxiety filled we're not going to have enough chick-fil-a when it comes that he just started doing these strange things when you answer the question Do we have enough with the answer no, it creates this tension, this anxiety that makes you go and it shows you how important that question is, not just to our society, but to us. And then once we realize that, we can be fair to the disciples. They had seen Jesus feed 5,000. They had seen Jesus feed 4,000 and they're on the boat and they're wondering, will we have enough? We see it in verse 4. How can we feed people in this desolate place? We see it in verse 16. They were discussing the fact that they had no bread. Now Jesus confronts them by the end of this passage and say, don't you guys understand? Do you still not get it? And he says something very profound and very important to them. I've been thinking about bread for the last, now three weeks, and if I had to pick, my favorite form of bread is the banh mi. The banh mi is a Vietnamese sandwich. The outside is crunchy. The inside is soft, it soaks in all the sauce, you bite through, you get crunchy, soft, crunchy vegetables, soft meat, and then it repeats on the way down. And there's a balance of acid and sweet and salty. Um, Yeah. I forgot what I was talking about, but I like banh mis. Oh, I like bread. And bread is delicious, but we know that bread is more than bread. In our culture, bread is money, right? I'm going to make the dough. And if you say that to your kid, they're like, oh, my dad's a baker. But none of us are, none of us are bakers. So um, bread equals money. In the New Testament times, bread equaled wisdom. It equaled an attitude of life. It equaled a way that you look at the world. So in verse 15, when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's telling them to think about the wisdom that is around them and to beware of that type of wisdom. Herod is a very confusing figure in the Bible because there are a couple people named Herod, and most likely Jesus is talking about a guy named Herod Antipas. Now we don't know much about Herod, but we do know that there is this story about Herod and John the Baptist. He was actually pretty interested in John the Baptist. So he had him arrested and made him talk to him, and he was too afraid to put him to death, and he was a little fascinated by him. But the thing that we know about this Herod was he cast aside the things of God for the sake of pleasure. He was throwing this party This person danced for him, and he said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, I want John the head on the Baptist. And then he gave it to her, even though he did not want to. So he knew about the things of God. He was interested in the things of God. But when pleasure was there, he threw the things of God away, the leaven of Herod. But then there's the leaven of the Pharisees. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells us a couple things about them. The first thing he tells us is they love their human traditions more than God's law. So for the sake of their tradition, they cast aside God's law and they are not allowing God to speak in a powerful way. And the result of this is they start lacking compassion for the people around them. Jesus asks a guy to stand up and walk who had been paralyzed and rather than celebrating the Pharisees go, you're not allowed to pick up that mat. They care more about a person breaking a rule than a person unable to walk. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod. And even though both of those things are different, human tradition and pleasure, they end up at the same place. They only look down, and they don't allow heavenly things to come in. They only answer the question, do we have enough, by looking down at the ground and counting what they have. And we see it clearly when the Pharisees ask for a sign. They say, show us a sign, but not just any sign. Show us a sign from heaven. And it's clear that what they're looking for is something like God ripping the skies open and sending a thunderbolt down or something like that. But Jesus refuses because he knows no sign will be good enough for a person like this. He has healed lepers. He has cast out demons. He's fed 5,000. He's fed 4,000. He says, that is the sign that you need. Not God up in the sky doing God things, but heaven coming down into earth and doing godly things amongst people who are low, people who are wicked. The lesson Jesus is trying to teach his disciples is the question, how much do we have, is not the right question. The question should be not how much do we have, but whom do we have? And a couple verses later, he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who looks at a widow giving two small coins and says she has given more than anybody else. You are the one who, when somebody brushes against you, you heal a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. You are the one who sees a short man climb up a tree who has been outcast from his city and invites him in and say, I want to eat with you. Whom you have is the more important question than how much do you have. We have a God who can take five loaves and do miracles. A couple weeks ago, I was teaching this lesson to the kids uh, because Miss Natalia was out. And at the end of the lesson, I said, OK, guys, imagine Jesus says, I will multiply anything that you want. Um, draw a picture of it, and then we're going to try and guess who drew this picture, and then we'll come back. And so I sent them off, and all these kids did it. And the kind of things they came back were pretty strange. Um, somebody drew Smarties. Uh, somebody drew a cat. Um, somebody drew Wolverine. I think you drew a Wolverine. Um, yeah. I think it was. It. I drew Wolverine. No, I didn't do a drawing. Yeah. Did you do sushi? You helped me. Oh yeah, yeah, I helped him. Okay, and my daughter did uh, worms. And uh, the thing that's interesting about what these kids drew is none of them drew bread. None of them drew money. None of them drew a down payment. Why? Uh, because they have not been bogged down by the question, "Do we have enough?" Instead, they know that they can come to Jesus with the things that give them wonder, the things that make them go, wow, the things that make them excited about life. And they know this lesson better than we know, which is Jesus is more than bread. He is something deeper. He is something more profound. As uh, Pastor Sam mentioned, we had a prayer meeting start on Tuesday. Uh, Mike and Jean led it, and they gave a little bit of time to kind of just pause And hear if there's any um, insight from God. And during this prayer meeting, Pastor Sam uh, was listening to God. And he shared this vision, which I think is pretty apropos to our church. He said, we are a small church, but I think God is going to bring a flood of ministry our way. But I think a lot of people in our church feel like we just have this very small bucket. And that is true. We're a small church. And when you only ask the question, do we have enough, the answer is always going to be no. But when you switch the question from do we have enough to who do we worship, who is in our midst, who inhabits the praises of our people, then the answer to that question is we have more than enough. We're small, we have these five lows, we have these seven lows, and if that's all we look at, we're gonna go, there's a big city out there, there's not much that we can do. But if we stop looking at this stuff and we look up and we look at God and we look at Christ, we can see that he is capable of doing so much more than we can ask or imagine, even though we're small, even though we lack so much. My encouragement to you this morning is stop looking down. Stop asking the question as a church, do we have enough? Start looking up and saying, God, who are you? What are you capable of doing? Just a couple of um, statistics because we're dealing with thousands. Uh, According to uh, homelessness statistics, 50,000 people will sleep in shelters tonight with thousands sleeping unsheltered. As you know, there is a refugee crisis from Central and South America, and a lot of people are being bused to New York. Estimates say maybe 4,000 people over the next couple weeks. And I could come here and say, good news church, we're a small church, what will you do, what will you do, what do you have? But the question I wanna leave you with is not what do you have, but who do you worship? Whom do you have? Let's pray. Um, I think the place to start is um, the question, do we have enough, is something that we all have in our hearts, and it's something that drives us to go to work, it drives us to save, it drives us to figure out our life. What I said about the church also applies to us. God is capable of doing more than enough in your life. I don't know if you feel like you're constantly struggling just to keep up, but the first word God speaks to is, you have enough because you have me. If you're praying that way and God is able to bring you comfort, that's great. But if you're there, then maybe we can also pray for our church. God, we are a small church, and when we look at what we have, we don't have much. But when we look at you, we know that we can have more than enough, that there's immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Let's start praying for ourselves, and let's start praying for our church so that we can unstick ourselves from this mentality that only those with enough can do what God wants them to do. No, he loves to use small churches, weak churches, weak people like ours to accomplish his will. So let's pray like that for a little bit and then uh, we'll continue to reflect through worship.